This is Cashflow Ninja, episode 175, with Graeme Parham. Welcome to the Cashflow Ninja, the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. Now, here is your host, MC Laubscher. Hi there, MC Lobster here, and welcome to another episode of the Cashflow Ninja. I have a great show for you today, and in today's show, we're going to look at how to qualify for income property loans. My guest in this episode is Graham Parham. Graham has been a mortgage loan officer for over 18 years, with 25 years in sales and marketing. He is a leader of financial expertise in the North Texas residential real estate market, developing a significant following among home buyers and investors. Known and respected industry-wide, Graham's production consistently ranks him as a top producer in this marketplace. Graham offers invaluable insights into a purchaser's likely requirements, providing an exceptional business ethic of customer service and respect, catering to their needs from pre-qualification to closing. As an active investor himself, Graham has a strong insight on what his investment buyers are looking for to accomplish their short and long-term goals. Knowing that investment loans are strongly scrutinized, it's up to Graham and his team of underwriters who understands rental property loans versus that of an owner-occupied residence. His general knowledge of REO properties and turnkey providers coupled with a strong operational staff allows his loan closings to be seamless and on time every time. Please share your feedback and thoughts on today's interview. You can let me know your thoughts on Twitter by tweeting me at MCLobsher or by email at info at CashflowNinja.com. And please remember to join our mailing list by signing up at CashflowNinja.com or texting CashflowNinja to 44222. To ensure you never miss one of our episodes, you can download our free interactive smartphone apps from the Apple and Google Play app stores. You can also support the show by becoming a patron on Patreon for $10 a month. And when you do become a patron, you get access to our private Facebook page and a Cashflow Ninja t-shirt. You can become a patron at CashflowNinja.com forward slash support. Have you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad? Are you interested in real estate investing and don't know where to start or how to get the results you want? For valuable information to get you started, visit JoinOps Properties at joinopsproperties.com. If you're not earning at least 8% on your cash or money in your self-directed IRAs, you do not want to miss the private lending presentation for non-accredited investors done by Jimmy Freeland and Bob Scott. Discover how to create an income stream from real estate without the management headaches. You can access the presentation at cashflowninja.com forward slash private lending. Spartan Invest have a proven plan and system helping investors create passive income and wealth through turnkey real estate ownership in the exciting market of Birmingham, Alabama. Find out why Birmingham has got it going on, why it's a steal right now, why it's a millennial hangout, 
a hidden gem, and one of the most exciting investment opportunities you have never heard of. You can download your free report, Five Big Reasons to Invest in the Magical City of Birmingham, Alabama, at cashflowninja.com forward slash Spartan. I've spoken about the most powerful system on the planet, on the show, the banking system, and my firm, Valhalla Wealth Financial, helps people reclaim the banking function within their own lives through leveraging the premium tools and strategies of the wealthy. If you're interested in reclaiming the banking function within your own life and the infinite banking concept, you can access a free webinar presentation at cashflowninja.com forward slash be the bank. Graham, welcome to the show. Thank you, MC. I'm a pleasure to be here. Can you please share a little bit about your background and journey with my listeners? Sure. I've been in the mortgage industry right at 20 years now. I was in corporate America for about 15 prior to that and decided I uh, didn't want to work for the man anymore. And a buddy of mine was working um, for a larger institution, financial institution called Washington Mutual at the time. And uh, being pretty successful as a loan officer, I said, you know what, my buddy can do it. I'm going to get in there and do it. And and so it was kind of a big commitment, you know, jumping from a a salaried employee over to a straight commission employee. But uh, this business is really not as complicated as people think it is. And he was able to take a lot of the what ifs out. And which helped me a lot and just to stick to the basics. And, the, and basically this business is people working with people. That's all it is. And, you know, real estate agents work with title companies, loan officers, the whole nine yards. And it's ultimately trying to satisfy the customer. And when I started doing this back 20 years ago, I had no idea that I would end up where I am today simply because I was, my audience was catered to not only first time home buyers, but, you know, move up buyers as well as investors, second home and so forth. And then, after a few years, I woke up one day and there was about 90 to 95% of my pipeline was all working with investors. This, oddly enough, is a very uh, a small industry and people don't understand that, but everybody eventually knows everybody. Uh, and, you know, it's always good to have somebody that you can rely on to, to that you can trust, uh, you know, working with your financials. And that's kind of the reputation that I've gained over the years. That's all I do is work with investors. And I work all over the country with a lot of different uh, real estate providers, turnkey providers, just regular real estate agents and so forth. And I'm also an investor myself. I uh, took a look about 15 years ago at some tax returns of some very large investors come across my desk and said, you know, what do these guys know that I don't? Nothing. They're just doing it. So I jumped in feet first and went my my first property sight unseen. And then that was kind of a, a no brainer. And then I bought, you know, eight the rest of the year and put on another five or 10 the rest of the, uh, the, the following year. And so I was able to build up my inventory pretty quickly, which is a li- not as uh, easy as it is today, simply because of some of the limitations that we have in the marketplace. But being a real estate investor helps me do my job a little better than most because I understand what these guys are going through, especially when it comes to like doing exchanges, how to strategize for the future, what kind of percentage of down payment should I use, these kind of things. So, you know, being not only a loan officer and an investor, and a lot of times when I'm, I'm talking to these folks, I'll say, okay, this is the hat I've got on at this point. I'm now talking as an investor and not a real estate or an investor and not as a loan officer. So it makes a lot of fun for me. Uh, you know, not working with first-time home buyers does have a benefit because I don't have to worry about the wife not liking the carpet or the paint and just <laughs> kind of see through that. So that's kind of my background. I uh, worked for a company. 
that were based out of uh, Dallas, uh, Texas. It's privately held, fastest growing privately held company in Texas at this point. Uh, we cater to about close to 30 states. I'm in about 18 different markets around the country. So I do with work in the most uh, popular, should I say turnkey or hot markets that are real estate uh, investor driven. Uh, so that's where my coverage is, but I have a full staff that works with me at Highlands. And our theory is let's get it done quickly and let's not get it done messy. And that's kind of been my claim to fame. Just get it done. A lot of lenders, unfortunately, can't say that today. No, absolutely not. And what I love, Graham, is that you are a real estate investor. You have the mindset of, and an entrepreneurial mindset. So you know how investors think. And also, you can guide the new investors, especially when it comes to turnkey operations, in strategically planning the acquisition of certain properties because it's that long-term and long long uh, view range that you, that you have as well. It's not just trying to find the first property and get a mortgage on it, right? There's a whole plan that plays into this. True, true. And that first one's always the most difficult. And once they, they use, and nine times out of 10, once they get one on their belt, they get hungry and they start buying a bunch. It's, it's, it's really fun to see. And I love holding their hand along the way. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's exciting. I enjoy it. So just to preface our conversation, today's discussion is built around one to four unit income properties. So we won't be discuss, discussing uh, owner-occupied properties. Uh, Graham, share a little bit with my listeners what's going on in this niche and some of the changes because it's an ever-evolving industry and changing industry. Uh, what's, what's going on in this niche? In the one to four category, which is called residential lending, which at this point in in, uh, in the game is that most of it is catered to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. And to go back in time a bit, before the 2008 mortgage meltdown, there was uh, more than just Fannie and Freddie lenders. There were uh, lenders we call alternate paper lenders, which were mainly a, a lot of the guys up out of New York that decided to get into the game. And they were coming up with some pretty crazy loans. The great thing about those crazy loans even on a fully documented basis, which we'll get into in a minute, is that uh, it only offered the investor to allow them to go beyond the 10 limit, Fannie Freddie limit that we have in place today. In 2008, when we had the knee jerk mortgage meltdown, uh, Fannie and Freddie were both at 10 and they throttled back to four. Uh, probably eight, 10 months later, Fannie Mae says maybe that was a little bit too much and they went back to eight, or excuse me, went back to 10. Since then, we've been we have like two sets of rules. We have a a one to four uh, loans, which means you, they include your primary residence as one. You can buy three investment properties with twenty percent down, and then the five to ten you would have to put twenty five percent down. Now those have recently changed. You can now through Fannie Mae go all the way up to ten with only twenty percent down. The only thing that's changed is that the FICO score that was available on the one to four versus five to 10 is still in place for the number of properties, but it's up to six. So which means that if you have less than a 720 credit score, you can, you can buy a single family residence with 20% down all the way down to 620 credit score. Once you go from seven to 10, the 720 credit score is required, but you can still put 20% down. And of course, there's some new reserve requirements that are now in place. 
Let's talk about uh, some of the HELOC strategies that turn into that because you touched upon credit scores and debt-to-income uh, ratios is a consideration when you're looking at applying for uh, mortgages. Um, do you Would you still advise uh, using some of those HELOC strategies and uh, share a little bit about how uh, some of your clients have used uh, some of these strategies within <laughs> uh, these acqu- acquisition models? I love HELOCs. I think they're great. I think everybody should have one regardless if they use them or not. The HELOC is called a home equity line of credit. It's typically a bank product or typically a second lien position product, which you can secure behind your primary residence. Back before the 08 meltdown, HELOCs were readily available not only on primary residences, but also on second homes and investment properties. Once again, when the uh, the meltdown hit, uh, a lot of the banks just withdrew the lines of credit from a lot of different people, and they had some pretty sizable HELOCs. But back then, they were using the HELOCs the very same way they're using them today. Like people on the uh, on the West Coast that now have the, the appreciations have recovered, that equity position is stronger than it was before. So they're using that HELOC to tap into that equity to bring forward into an investment property to use for down payment purposes, closing costs, and so forth. And it makes a lot of sense. The same way people are using selling those properties that have now gained that appreciation and, and duplicating those into more properties, which we refer to as a 1031 tax exchange. So people are re-strategizing their equity position of what they have in their current properties and saying, okay, how can I use that to my benefit and how can I grow my inventory? And HELOC is one of the best. I personally just got through doing both um, the 1031 exchange and the HELOC. I finished out three different exchanges. So I'm back up to the 10 fanny limit, which means I cannot get any more loans. So now I have my HELOC that I can fall back on that I can use to go, in essence, pay cash for another property if I so choose to do, which I am. So you can use HELOCs in any shape or any way you want. Uh, some people may have sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars $80,000 worth of credit card debt. Well, none of that's tax-free. The interest rate on these credit cards are quite high. The HELOC can wipe the entire thing out and still be tax deductible. So there's multiple ways you can use HELOCs, but for the investment purposes, it's a great tool to have handy. Uh, let's talk about reserve requirements because this is one thing, obviously, that lenders will take a look at. What are some of the uh, reserve requirements that's needed for different size of properties from one to six properties, from seven to ten? Sure. What has taken place is uh, in this most recent change with Fannie Mae, they also changed the uh, reserve requirements, which means you have to have so many months of principal, interest, tax, and insurance, and any HOA, if you have those, per property times a number of, which it used to be uh, on the one to four family, or excuse me, the one to four loans, you would have to have six months of, of reserves on the, on the subject property and two months on any other property's own, excluding the primary residence. Now what they've done is they've changed it to, okay, if you own uh, up to four properties, we're going to take the aggregate amount of any loans outstanding on any properties that are owned, excluding the primary residence, and we use a percentage multiplier against that. As an example, if you had a primary residence and three investment properties, and your three investment properties were the total amount, let's just say it's $100,000. In this particular category, 
there's a 2% multiplier against that $100,000. So your reserve requirements at that point will be $2,000. The next category be up to the five and six category, which at that point, the percentage multiplier jumps from two to four. So let's say you had six properties and the total loan outstanding balances collectively for all of them are say 200,000. Well, the 4% multiplier against that puts you at $8,000 of reserves. Okay. The last category would be the seven to 10. That would put you at a 6% multiplier. Once again, if you had to say a $300,000 balance, 6% of that as a multiplier would be 18,000. Now, the good news is it doesn't have to be liquid. We can use uh, a 401k, IRAs, all types of different vehicles that are tax deferred, we can use those at 100% of the asset, which means before we could only use 60% of that asset. If you had an IRA that was worth $100,000, we'd give you credit for $60,000. Now we can give you credit all the way up to one hundred. So a lot of people know that there has to be reserves, but they don't understand. They may already have them tucked away in another retirement vehicle doesn't necessarily have to be in liquid funds, whether it be in a money market, cash, you know, uh, checking, savings, whatever the case may be. They can always rely on those as well. Now, one thing I will point out is though HELOCs cannot be used for reserves. It's very important and people think that's true, but it's not. Very, very interesting. Now, let's talk about interest rates and uh, what are some of the current rates out there and how much higher are the rates for investors as opposed to owner-occupied uh, property? One of the things that, uh, well, there's several things that we look at to determine a, a, a rate. Let's just take a 30-year fixed rate product right out of the box from Fannie Mae. Every product has an adjustment, whether it be owner-occupied or non-owner-occupied. Obviously, the adjustment for non-owner-occupied is more aggressive than it would be owner-occupied. 20 to 25% down, they're going to get a better rate at 20 versus 25% down, which they have less uh, adjustments. Loan amounts, a lot of times they don't bring that into play. Just got through locking four loans today. Two of them were at $150,000 loans, and the other two were at seventy-five. Well, they have a rate differential there of an eighth of a point, and they couldn't understand it until I explained it to them because Fannie Mae does have loan amount adjustments. I think it starts at 150 125 75 and so forth. But to give you kind of perspective today, people are out looking to uh, invest in some real estate and they're looking at proposals from turnkey providers. The rate I would probably plug in today would probably see even on the low side, uh, when I say low side, the low loan amounts, probably anywhere from five to five and a quarter with a 20% down to probably four and a half to four and three quarters with a 25% down, and this is with zero-point pricing. Zero-point pricing means we charge no points to get to that price. The value add that you have is you're an investor, you bring an investor's perspective and mindset, working with your clients and helping them plan of not only buying that first property, but also the second property and the third property and the fourth one. And this is a a part of a planning process and a strategy. Uh, Can you share a little bit more information about mortgage sequencing? For example, if a buyer wants to buy in Memphis today and in another turnkey market like Jacksonville and the next month, what should a plan look like for such a client? Perfect. There's several strategies and way to go. And I try to put myself in their shoes 
every time. And I'll tell them that. I'll tell them, you know, I'm an investor and this is what I would be doing. And then also explain what are some of the obstacles that are along the way when you work with certain lenders that you would not necessarily see with others. And that sometimes they have a thing called rapid acquisition. It's an old terminology that was used by one of the Alte lenders back in the day. And there's still some lenders out there that are still hanging on to it, which means they, they basically tap the brakes for first-time investors. If an investor wants to go out and buy four properties right off the bat, sometimes they'll limit them to two. Or sometimes they'll stop them at four and you have to wait another year before you start buying new properties. We don't have any of those limitations, okay? So what we do is, okay, what's the strategy? How much money do you have? How much do you want to invest? What markets are you looking at? Okay, because that determines some pricing of the price points of the sales price. And then determine, okay, do we do 20 or 25% down? And there's always a different mindset between the two of them, okay? Because especially for those people that say they have $100,000, and they want to buy three or four properties. Well, it's probably to their advantage to do 20% down versus 25% down because they can spread their money out a little better versus having 25% down, which may limit them only to three, okay? Depend, once again, depending on the price point. Uh, the other thing that people are always concerned with is, well, can I afford four properties? Well, the answer is yes. Many lenders, when they look at, let's say we call it a four-pack, Okay. There's four loans that you're there with four contracts that you're bringing me. We're setting up four loans for you to close at the same time. Fine. Most lenders will give you credit for the subject property as far as the lease is concerned or the income from that property, which is going to be at a 75% level. And most of the turnkey providers that you probably work with MC usually goes by a 1% rule, which means that if they have a $100,000 property, typically they're going to receive a $1,000 rent. With that, we're going to give them a seventy or $750 credit at a 75% of the lease, and their principal and interest in tax and insurance is probably somewhere in the 650 range. So there's, it's going to have enough income to offset that liability and may give them a little extra as well. But what other lenders will not do is give income on properties three and, or excuse me, two, three, and four. So they have to count the entire liability against the qualifying ratios, and hopefully they will, uh, you know, can approve for the loan. We don't. So the thing that comes out of my mouth quite often is, if you can afford one, you can afford four, and you really can't. Okay. And one of the things people go, well, what happens if there's not a lease or a tenant in the house when you buy it? Not a problem. Because if you're doing all four at one time, when we order the appraisal, the appraisal we're going to order is going to have an average market rent ratio, which typically will come in at the 1%. And we will honor that in lieu of getting the lease. Okay. So there are some ways to achieve some rapid acquisition, if you may, but still do it the right way. You're listening to Graham Parham on the Cashflow Ninja podcast. We will be right back after a word from our sponsor. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. You're listening to Graham Parham on the Cashflow Ninja podcast and now back to our interview. 
And the other question that I had too, when uh, clients of yours close on these uh, these properties, um, at what stage does the LLC come into play? Because that's a question that I get too, as far as from an asset protection standpoint. Are they allowed to close a- as an LLC with these properties, with their credit? Can you share a little bit more information on that side of this, uh, this strategy? Absolutely. If I had a dollar for every time I had this conversation, I'd have a lot of money. Uh, <laughs> this, this is, you're absolutely right. This is ask from about at least 90% of every investor that I work with because A, they probably have gone through several training seminars. Maybe you turn them on to something or another promoter has explained, you know, you got to have that asset protection. And I'm not disqualifying that by any means. I personally on my properties will have an LLC as an asset protection. Downside is, is Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac does not allow for any type of entity vesting, which means LLCs, limited partnerships, S-Corps, anything other than your name or a family trust. The on-the-record answer is no, we cannot provide you with a loan that allows you to fund in an LLC. We can allow you to fund in your individual name, and what I do personally, and this is not advice by any means, is I'll usually wait for a couple, three months for the servicer to finally get the loan set up, and then I'll have my either attorney or an escrow officer retitle the loan into my LLC. Now, on the record, every note that's issued by Fannie and Freddie has a thing called a due-on-sale clause. The due-on-sale clause is basically says if you change the titlement of this property, we as the loan servicer have the right and the ability to call the note due. Now, off the record, I've been doing this for roughly 15, 16 years now. Myself, as well as working with investors, been doing it for over 20. I have never seen in that period of time to see a note called due. Yes, if you stop making payment on a loan, they're probably going to call it due. Unless, of course, you want to pick up the phone and call the loan servicer, and then you're talking to a guy reading the script on the other end saying, yes, sir, I think we're probably going to have to call that note due if you transfer it into an LLC. Uh, there's uh, several blog sites out there that for investors, and one of them I, I came across the other day, and it was from a guy that made a blog, and he was from one of the bigger banks. And the, better, the bigger banks, you know, they will get honoring when it comes to stuff like this. He was the manager of a servicing department, and he says, he sees this kind of activity going on all the time and they've never called a note due. So if that puts a lot of minds at ease, I'm just letting you know. So asset protection is a viable tool. I highly recommend it. You just got to make sure that you do it with the right kind of timing and do it the proper way to ultimately achieve your, your total goal. Graham, now for listeners out there that are interested in uh, being prepared and getting documents ready and preparing to reach out to yourself uh, in starting to the planning phase of acqui- acquisition and uh, getting ready to, to buy property, what documents should they have ready and how can they uh, prepare themselves? It's a good question. Um, typically, I like to interview all the uh, prospective borrowers up front to kind of find out a little bit about it more about their objective, kind of what they do, how many people will be involved, so forth and so on, and kind of uh, qualify, so to speak, in my mind, if this is going to be a go or not. Uh, A lot of times on self-employed people, I'm a little more cautious than I would be like a W-2 salaried employee, simply because I don't know what they've written off on their taxes. But what we do at this point, once I do the interview and I feel confident enough that we're going to be able to do the loan, because I certainly don't want to waste their time nor myself, is I'll send them to my website. They'll fill that out. It takes 10, 15 minutes. 
And then my, myself or one of my team members will be back with them and, and we'll have another post interview from the, uh, inter, uh, from the uh, application. And then we'll identify the type of documents that they'll be needing to qualify for the loan because everybody's a little bit different depending on their situation. But what we do and when we, when we approve a loan, we take a look at three categories. What your credit is, how much money you make, and how much money you have. And by validating those three categories, obviously I'm pulling the credit. As far as how much money you make, <clears throat> those will come through pay stubs, W-2s, and tax returns. And how much money you have, well, those are typically bank statements of where you have all your assets. Once we have the application, we'll send you out a specific list on to for, for you to send it to us so we can put it into the file, run all the numbers, we can usually do that within 24 to 48 hours, and at that point, we kick you off an approval letter. So preparation, I would say, you know, gather all your income and asset information, and then anything other than that will be very specific with you, depending on your needs. Now, a lot of my listeners are self-employed, they're small business owners, they're entrepreneurs. Uh, what advice can you give for them, and, and what kind of is the qualifying process for someone that is self-employed or is a small business owner? And that's a good question. Um, let's take an individual that has a business, but the business is incorporated. Let's say they put the business into an LLC. Yes, we're going to take a look at their income for the last two tax returns. Okay, In this case, it'll be for 15 and 16. Not only will we take a look at their personal returns, but we'll also take a look at their business returns. What we typically will do is we'll average the net net income of the person returns just to make sure there's enough income there. And a lot of times it's lenders look at it differently, but let's say they had a okay year in 15 and they had a better year in 16. Well, we're going to average if they had a really good year in 15 and not so good of income in, in uh, 16, unfortunately we take the lower of the two. We don't average. So be prepared on that one. In addition even though you've got a, like a, a corporation that's paying you a salary, if you may, that's being declared on your 1040 personal tax returns, if the company is running in, red, in the red and not declaring a profit and they, they're seeing losses on their tax returns, well, it's their company. They own it. Those losses can come back to haunt you, so be prepared for that as well. It's all a mathematical game. We just run the numbers, and if the numbers fall into place, it's all good. Now, overall, Graham, uh, what would you say, how is the lending climate currently? Is it more uh, loose a little bit or tighter than one year ago or five years ago? And you and I had spoken about uh, just uh, an event that uh, is happening in the industry that's very, that I would think our listeners would find very interesting before we started our interview. Can you share a little bit more about that as well? Well, the Dodd-Frank was initiated back in 2010 to address the crippled industry. Uh, in my opinion, uh, it was written in a way that uh, did a, you know, limited a lot of the lending activity and, in my opinion, somewhat crippled the industry. Uh, if you take a look at the uh, numbers I've seen on several different uh, economists showing the number of owner-occupied transactions and owner-occupied residencies versus renters, it's quite shocking. <clears throat> the renters are much higher than the owner-occupants simply because, A, the first-time home buyer doesn't even know if they can even get a loan, so they don't even bother with it. 
or B, they, they truly can't because of the limitations in the Dodd-Frank Act. Now, what I do think is that with the new administration in the play, needless to say, our new uh, chief of staff, so to speak, Donald Trump, he uh, his background is real estate. And I really think that he cares about this industry. And <clears throat> I think he will be uh, uh, making some measures to do some alterations to uh, the Dodd-Frank bill, if not, uh, you know, getting it more in line so we can increase the activity of loans. Uh, that, I think, is a good thing. I think we, we finally, after eight years, are finally starting to say, okay, that we can start seeing some relief. Will it be this year? I don't know. Will it be next year? Hopefully. But I do think we're on the right track to improving our, our, our uh, ability to do loans. I'm starting to personally feel it every now and then with uh, new updates from Fannie Mae, allowing a little bit looser of a guideline on this area versus this area. And I truly feel that the people uh, that have been sitting on the sidelines, those guys out of New York, I really think that they're probably going to jump back into the game with their own personal products. It may not be a sellable loan to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac, but it will be an alternate A type of a product, not necessarily subprime, but most people would consider it more of a portfolio nature, something that's going to be retained by the investor. So I do think that the industry is starting to see the light. I really do. Uh, I just wish it could be a little bit sooner than later. No, you touched too on the 1031 exchange in the <laughs> beginning of our conversation. Uh, can you, for new listeners out there, can you talk a little bit about exactly what it is, how it help you, would help you to scale uh, your properties and, and acquire more properties and walk us through the cost and funding of this process? The 1031 is a tool that's been around for quite some time. It's allowed, in other words, if you sell your primary residence, you've got so much a time period to acquire a new primary residence without any tax penalties. For investment properties, it's a little different. They, If you want to carry that profitability or whatever you've made on that property to new properties, the 1031 exchange vehicle will allow you to do so. The way the, the, the mechanics of the 1031 works is there are several 1031 administrating companies out there that can help support you with this. Typical transaction when you sell a property, the proceeds from the property that's being sold will go directly to the exchanger. It will not go into the borrower's pocket. Once that day of sale goes into place, then there's a time clock that starts to tick, 45 days, which means you have 45 days to go find a replacement property or two or three, depending on how much money you're walking away with. This vehicle allows investors to grow their inventory without having to take the the true tax penalties, which is great. I personally just got through doing three exchanges myself, completely realigned my inventory, sold eight, bought nine. Now I'm up to 10 again, and uh, I'm very pleased with the whole transaction. The key to to being successful with uh, uh, a 1031 tax exchange, A, is to get with people like myself that can advise you correctly, but also get with a good 1031 uh, administrator because the industry itself, oddly enough, unlike the insurance industry, the real estate industry, the lending industry, they're not governed by anybody. There is no rules of regulation. Sure, there's the IRS guidelines, but nobody's sitting there waiting to slap their hand for doing something wrong, which means sometimes they can they can run them up. They can do whatever they want, which means when it comes down to closing, you know, hey, send us the money. And I've gone toe-to-toe with some bad uh, 1031 exchangers. But I think for the most part, most of those exchanges have left the playing field. And uh, in the last, say, two and a half, three years, I've dealt with all the really good exchangers. 
but the exchanging uh, is starting to come back around, like I say, two and a half, three years ago, whereas before they were doing a lot of the exchanges up to the uh, 08 bust. It's those properties that you own that you never never got uh, rid of during the 08 bust. You lost appreciation. Now you've gained the equity back. Now you want to parlay that into more investments. Like I say, you can go out and buy two or three more properties. I upgraded all my my investment properties to the point where I went from, say, a, a C property or a D property and graduated up to B and A properties, which I'm very pleased with. So the exchange is a very, very useful tool. I highly recommend it. This is also a great way to defer capital gain taxes and deferring, the emphasis on deferring. Um, what are some of the, the three requirements uh, that uh, buyers have to be aware of and adhere to to get this full tax deferral? The three main ones are, is there's a 200% rule. You sell a property for 100000 You can buy up to 100000 or up to 200000 which is your 200% rule. Uh, so it's just a simple math. There's there's two kinds of boot where we refer to or taxation. One is called a mortgage boot. The other one is called a cash boot. The cash boot comes into place if you sell a property for a hundred thousand and you buy one for ninety. Well, you didn't achieve that hundred thousand or greater, so you're going to experience a ten thousand dollar cash boot. So you always want to buy more than what you had sold before which typically if you're going to do it, you're going to probably end up buying two properties, which is not a big deal. On the mortgage side, the same rules apply. If you sold a property for $100 and you had a $50,000 loan on it, well, you have to achieve a $50,000 loan or two, equating up to $50,000 or greater, so you don't experience any mortgage boot. So the 200% rule comes into play for that. There's also a minimum property rule of three properties. If you're exchange, if you, you're selling one property, you can buy, not buy more than three properties. So keep that in mind on that one particular exchange. And also, if you do exceed these rules, there is a 95% rule, which I'm still a little unclear of, but which means that if you identify so many properties, you are uh, responsible for closing 95% of those properties being identified. So those are really your main keys. Please discuss this exchange with a tax strategist and a tax advisor because this does have tax implications, as we've discussed. And I will say that you want to get with a good uh, tax exchanger, yes. But first and foremost, make sure that the tax exchanger and your personal accountant are on the same page because, quite frankly, a lot of times they're not. Now, Graham, uh, one habit I've observed from wealthy and successful people is that they're always studying new subjects and learning new skill sets. What are you currently studying and what skill sets are you currently learning? What I'm trying to do and improve my skill set is that I have a team that we have developed a machine, so to speak. Everybody has their role. Everybody has their lane. And they're all expected to do that job to satisfy the customer ultimately at the end. My job is to constantly try to improve where can we get better. Okay, we think we're the best, but can we get better? Absolutely. And we'll have a roundtable discussion every week, and we'll ask each other, where could we have done better on this particular situation and and, and moving forward? Calling the uh, referral partners. How did we do? How can we do better? Calling title companies. How do we do? How can we do better? So I'm constantly trying to improve that scenario. From a knowledge basis, I'm constantly uh, looking on you know social media sites, not necessarily your Facebook so much as like other uh, investment websites that can provide you with education like what you're doing now. 
I do listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to and hear what my competitors are doing, hearing what my, uh, the, what the industry is doing. So that's really how I try to gain as much knowledge because I try to stay ahead of the game as much as possible simply from a, 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 a more of a guideline, if anything else, because I don't want something to get through underwriting. All of a sudden, the brakes are put on for a new guideline that came up from Fannie Mae that I was not aware of. So I constantly am studying those guidelines every time they have new publications. Graham, a core message in our show is to leave our families, communities, and the world better than we found it by passing down a mindset, values, and principles to future generations, not just money. So if you cannot pass on any money to future generations and we're only allowed to pass on three principles to them to build wealth and achieve happiness and success, what would they be? Well, I do know that a lot of people work really hard in their employment and some work harder than others. And sometimes they miss the forest for the trees and they put more emphasis on their job than do to their family. I don't personally have any children, but I do have a wife of 20 years now. And we try to have an equal balance of what I do in my employment as well as my personal life. And I think I pretty much achieved that. Yes, I do work a lot, but I also do not neglect my family. But one of the things as far as financial investing is that I wish somebody would have tapped me on the shoulder at an earlier age. I really, really respect those individuals that call me right out of college and say, hey, listen, I could put my money in the 401k, but it, my dad said it would be prudent for me to start looking at investing in real estate. Love working with those guys. They're starting off young, which I wish I'd somebody would tap me on the shoulder and got me started off young. I didn't start putting money in my 401k until I was like 30. So I, you know, I really wish I had started even earlier. But that's the, one of the main things as far as planning your retirement. Do it now because we all know that we're not sure what kind of pension we're going to get, nor are we going to sure you know what Social Security is going to be like down the road. So that's one of the things I would highly recommend. No, those are great. And that is all <laughs> taking the taking everything into your own control and taking control of your destiny uh, to where you want to go. And I have the same feeling as you do, you know, when I get phone calls uh, in my own practice from very, very, uh, yeah, yeah, young uh, guys and gals just out of, uh, out of college, uh, looking at how to build wealth and create wealth for themselves. Um, it's fantastic uh, that they start at such a young age. So uh, really commend them and respect them. Graham, uh, where can my uh, listeners learn more about you, your company, and keep informed of all of the projects that you're involved with? I have, like I said, I'm in uh, 15 states currently. Uh, you can go to any of my websites. Uh, they're all basically the same. Uh, if you're going to Alabama, it's alabamainvestorloans.com. You go to Texas, TexasInvestorLoans.com. But if you want to call and reach out to me, I'm kind of a 24-7 guy, <clears throat> which means if you want to call me uh, at, during the evening hours or even on the weekend, if I'm available to talk, I'll certainly take your call. If not, I will get back with you in a timely fashion. I have a direct toll-free, which is 855-326-6802, and it will ring my cell phone after hours, so you can call me anytime if you have any questions want to discuss your planning, your financial strategies, and hopefully like, we can help you out. Fantastic. Well, Grant, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your journey and your knowledge and providing so much value for my listeners. It was my pleasure, MC. Thank you for having me. This is MC Laubscher, the host of the Cashflow Ninja podcast. As you may know, I'm also the president and chief wealth strategist of Alhalla Wealth Financial. We help individuals, families, 
small businesses, entrepreneurs, and professionals build their wealth outside of Wall Street and help investors maximize the use of every dollar in their personal economy and boost their investment gains. We do this by combining the capital and investments with the financial vehicle of the wealthy according to the infinite banking concept. If you're interested to learn more about privatized banking and the infinite banking concept, you can access an exclusive webinar at cashflowninja.com forward slash be the bank. Thank you for joining my guests, Graham Parham and myself on the Cashflow Ninja today. If you like what you hear and appreciate what we're trying to build here at the Cashflow Ninja, please subscribe, rate and review our show on iTunes and share our show with family, friends and your network. I'm always trying to learn and improve in every area of my life. So if there's any way that I can provide more value to you and serve you better, please reach out to me at info at cashflowninja.com. If you're not a subscriber to the Cashflow Ninja Gashku newsletter, you can sign up for our newsletter at cashflowninja.com or text cashflowninja to 44222. You can support the show also by becoming a patron on Patreon for $10 a month. And when you do become a patron, you get access to our private Facebook page and a Cashflow Ninja t-shirt. You can become a patron at CashflowNinja.com forward slash support. Jimmy Freeland and Bob Scott have been in your shoes and have used real estate investing to become financially free. They've designed a system to take any beginner to an experienced deal-making investor in the least amount of time. They offer opportunities from basic education, coaching, bridge loan investing to turnkey investments in the cash-flowing market of St. Louis, Missouri. For more information, please visit joinupsproperties.com or call Jimmy and Bob at 314-799-2247. If you're not earning at least 8% on your cash or money in your self-directed IRAs, you do not want to miss the private lending presentation for non-accredited investors done by Jimmy Freeland and Bob Scott. Discover how to create an income stream from real estate without the management headaches. You can access the presentation at cashflowninja.com forward slash private lending. Creating passive income for you and your family is easier than you think. All you need are three things the right plan, the right product, and the right turnkey provider. As an investor, you want a safe, profitable, and convenient way to invest your capital without being at the mercy of stock market fluctuations. Investing in real estate in a turnkey way that provides monthly passive income with very low risk is exactly what Spartan Invest provides for their clients. Their mission is to make investing in real estate easy for the busy professional. Spartan Invest helps investors create passive income and wealth through turnkey ownership in Birmingham, Alabama. You can download your free report, Five Big Reasons to Invest in the Magical City of Birmingham, Alabama, at cashflowninja.com forward slash Spartan. The wealthiest families on the planet know how to capture their wealth and then leveraging their wealth through their own banking system. If you're interested in the infinite banking concept and learning the premier strategies of the wealthiest individuals and families on the planet, you can access a free webinar at cashflowninja.com forward slash be the bank. That's our show for today, everyone. Until next time, live a life of passion and purpose on your terms. You have been listening to the Cashflow Ninja with your host, MC Laubscher the podcast empowering and inspiring people to discover how to generate their own income and manage, grow, and protect their own wealth in the new economy. 
Today's show notes and resources are available on our website, CashflowNinja.com. This presentation is for educational and informational purposes only. The information being presented and considered does not consider your particular financial objectives or situation, and it does not make personalized recommendations. This material is not intended to replace the advice of a qualified tax and legal advisor or other qualified professionals, and you should not use the information in place of a customized consultation with a licensed professional regarding your specific personal financial objective, situation, and needs. We believe the information provided is reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, timeliness, or completeness. 